Hello, Yuma. I'm Quentin Grafton, Professor of Economics at the Australian National University and the convener of the Water Justice Hub, a platform for truth-telling and justice for all in relation to water. In this spirit of justice and reconciliation, we also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia on which this podcast has been produced and honour their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. The Water Justice Hub is a place for everyone, especially First Peoples, to promote their voice and respond to the global challenges of delivering sustainable development and water for all. This podcast is an initiative to represent water warriors and their stories from around the world, sharing ideas and narratives to assist in education, advocacy and water policy. Along this series, you will hear from a variety of voices promoting fluid conceptions of water justice as critical to the survival of individuals and also to our collective survival. Please listen with intent. Subscribe and share this podcast to assist in the fight for independent voices, equitable decision-making, and ultimately, water justice for all. To wrap up this series of the Water Justice Podcast, we celebrate a special issue of the International Journal of Water Resources Development. This journal issue is guest edited by Safar Fanayan, Gabriela Sacco and Louise Lieberman, and also myself. The issue is entitled Water Justice, Pathways for Voice, Truth and Reconciliation. With the help of our contributors, we contend that there is no inevitable arc of history that bends towards justice. Instead, water justice will only be achieved by collective actions, commitment to common goals, and the means to effect change. As part of this project, I appear on a panel with some of my fellow contributors, Keith Barney, Anna Manero, and Sophia Fanayan. Our expertise is varied, but our values are aligned in water justice for all. We answer some pressing questions on what we hope to achieve with this research and expand on our ideas through collective discussion. I hope you enjoy this panel and are inspired to read some of the amazing work in our special issue. Take it away, Kat. Take it away, Tim. Thank you. Thank you, Quentin. And thank you to the panellists for joining us for this recording. Audience, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Anna Monero, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Water Justice Hub at the Crawford School of Public Policy, which is based at the Australian National University. We are also joined by Associate Professor Keith Barney, who is the Head of the Resources, Environment and Development Group, also at the Crawford School. Thirdly, we have Ms. Safa Farnayan, who is a doctoral student at the University of Oxford. And of course, Professor Quentin Grafton, Laureate Fellow at the Water Justice Hub and the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. We have titled this talk, The Bending Towards Water Justice Panel, but I'll remind listeners that this is a celebration of the special issue of the International Journal of Water Resources Development titled Water Justice, Pathways for Voice, Truth and Reconciliation. A link to the special issue can be found in the show notes. We're joined at the Bending Toward Water Justice panel to finish off the first season of the Water Justice podcast. I'm joined with Kat. Thank you for hosting with me. Thanks, Tim. My pleasure. And we've got some wonderful guests I'd like to start with a question for Quinton, and I'll pass it on to Safa after Quinton's answered. You were recently guest editors for the Water Justice Special Issue of the International Journal of Water Resources Development. Why water justice and why now? Why water justice and why now? Those are very good questions, uh, Tim and, and Kat. So first of all, let me uh, let you know that uh, I'm speaking to you from Ngunnawal Nambi country. This is in the Australian capital territory of Australia. This is territory that they never ceded, and I pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging. So, thanks and acknowledgement to the country I'm on, but also thanks to my co editors. You'll be listening to Safa soon enough, but Gabriel Sacco has been interviewed already on the, this podcast series, and uh, Louise Lieberman. So, the four of us were the editors. And why now? Why water justice? Why now? Because uh, more than ever, if, uh, if you want to look at what's happened in the last two years of the pandemic, the importance of water, the importance of understanding injustice and understanding that the fatality rates just with COVID alone are, are much higher for the marginalised and the people in high population density. 
And that's true, of course, in terms of water, not only in terms of urban communities, it's true in many, many of the rural places in the world, whether it's Africa, Latin America, South Asia, or wherever you may be, including in my country, Australia, where people in remote communities uh, drink on a regular basis, their drinking water is unacceptable. It doesn't meet the uh, health guidelines. So yes, why now? Um, we've got climate change coming. We have a whole series of uh, risks that are heading our way. We already have a water crisis at a global scale, certainly for the poor and the marginalised, but it's coming to all of us as climate change hits us through droughts and floods and sea level rise. In terms of the why water justice, well, you know, injustice is, is ubiquitous. It's all around us. And so we have to focus in on those injustices that are fundamental to the basic needs and human rights. And one of those, those absolute fundamental human needs and basic rights, the basic rights and human needs is water. And I don't just mean drinking water. I also mean water sufficient for cooking, water sufficient for sanitation, but water sufficient for rivers and streams, water sufficient for groundwater. And it's not just an availability issue. It's also an accessibility issue. And it's also an issue of water quality. And there are billions, I'm not making this up, there are billions of people who don't have adequate access to water, both in drinking water, sanitation, and those sorts of issues. More than that, almost all the planets, certainly on the arid and semi-arid locations of the world, they certainly don't have, if they have the good drinking water for washing purposes, they certainly don't have access to the sorts of rivers, streams, etc., that used to exist. Some have disappeared forever now. And the impacts that that imposes on the, the rest of the world, not just human beings. So that's the, that's the story. It's, it's a sad story. It's a story of crisis. It's a story of a water emergency. But it's also, a, I think, a hopeful story, and, and that's part of what this special issue was about. I was very, very fortunate to have three wonderful editors, and Safa is, is one of them, to help guide through this process of getting contributions from around the world. And you'll be hearing from, from two of them today, um, Keith and Anna, but there are many others, and they provided the stories. They provided the narratives about justice. What's happening? Who's it happening to? Why is it happening? When is it happening? All of those sorts of questions that need to be asked. So that's two minutes or so uh, in terms of my full response about why now, why water justice, and why I worked with Safa and Gabriella and Louise, and of course, uh, the many contributors to this special issue, which I encourage everybody to read, including our editorial, bending towards water justice. Right. Thank you, Quentin. I'll pass the question on to Safa. Uh, Safa, yeah. um, why water justice and why now? It was all very beautifully covered by Quentin, but like to add on a small point. Uh, within a lot of discussions, we talk often about equity, about access, about providing resources, but it doesn't get into the nitty gritty of how, where, whom. So that is also one of the reasons I was so keen on participating and, and it was such an amazing experience being part of this because you're putting the spotlight on water justice. But most often it was on the peripheries. It was this additional thing. You're like, access is a problem. Justice also has to be tackled. It's one of these systemic issues. It becomes a cyclical thing. But at this point, putting the spotlight on water justice and injustice and how do we address it and where making it the core issue and focusing on it was something very important for now. And also more importantly, to build conversations and actions for the future, to draw more and more engagement around it. So this special issue also provided that platform for people who are working on this to put it at the center and bring up those experiences and take the conversation forward and move much ahead than this special issue, because this special issue also calls for more than just conversations, bring out these different nuances that are hidden often. And one of the challenges because of the pandemic that we could not access was many people are not familiar within the academic sphere of contributing to academic literature. That was one of the areas where we wanted to focus on. But because of the pandemic, a lot of these people who were working, who had agreed to contribute, had to change their focus. They had to focus on continuing their work and 
that's why we couldn't access many of them. But there were so many of uh, people around and with so many interesting experiences. And it's definitely something that will come on more in the future and much more, I hope. Yeah, the, the story of water justice around the, the world has common threads, but they are different stories and they look different in different contexts. So I'd like to ask the panel, what does water justice look like for you? Can you give us an example of water justice or water injustice from your work? Could we start with Anna, please? Thanks, Kat, for the question. So what does water justice look like to me in an example? For me, water justice is a situation where water does not impede any other forms of social or personal justice. So what I mean by this is that we have many, many situations across the world, and we can start from the country where I'm, I'm now in Nungawaja country in the southwest of Western Australia and in many other countries across Australia where water unfortunately, all the lack of good quality water becomes an impediment for the fulfillment of human needs and other human rights. An example could be someone who's accessing water for drinking purposes that is not fit for drinking so that the deficiency in water services translates into a health problem. Or thinking of the work that I did during my PhD in Tanzania and more broadly in Mozambique and Zimbabwe. And this is also the work that I presented in as part of this special issue, depending on how much or when the water is delivered for smallholder farmers that determines the, their capacity to grow the crops. An example is one of the stories that I have from one of the female farmers who said that Yes, she had enough water. She had sufficient amount of water to grow the crops she needed for a livelihood. However, the timing was really poor. She said because of where the, the place where her plot was located in the scheme, her turn to irrigate was at night. However, walking back and forth from her home to the farm at night, she was risking getting assaulted. So this deficiency in the adequate supply of water was impeding this, this person to fulfill her, her rights to earn a living and to feed her family. So for me, water justice is, as I said, the situation in which uh, we have sufficient amount of water and it's of, of good quality in a way that does not impede any other forms of social injustice. And this relates to the capabilities framework by Professor Sen. It's not something that I just pulled out of my hat, but out of all the frameworks and all the definitions of water justice that I've seen and that I've learned from, for me, this is the one that more closely represents what water justice means to me. Thanks, Anna. Could I pass over now to Keith, please? Okay, so what does water justice look like to me? I guess... For background, you know, the paper in the special issue with my co-author David Blake focuses on the country of Laos in Southeast Asia. It builds upon our both of our work over the last two decades in both Laos and the broader Mekong region. And we were interested in sort of taking a water justice lens to understanding hydraulic infrastructure development and dam building in Laos. And for anybody who doesn't is not so familiar with Laos, it's a very uh, mountainous country, first of all, and also blessed with a lot of rainfall, which produces a lot of rivers that are amenable for hydropower development for energy production. It's also a very poor country, just uh, looking to graduate from least developed country status that they've just been approved for that and their graduation will be coming up in around 2025. So the Lao government has really focused on hydraulic infrastructure and dam building as a national development strategy. And they've sort of positioned themselves as the so-called battery of Southeast Asia, or sometimes the battery of ASEAN, to sort of demarcate that, um, you know, they're using uh, dam building and hydraulic development, water development, as a key national development strategy to, you know, generate exports and to graduate the country from, uh, from a poverty status. So we, so we were interested in, um, you know, looking at this sector, which has been quite controversial over the past decades. Uh, there's been, uh, you know, the problems in uh, dam building in terms of impacted rivers, affected ecosystems, displaced communities. This has been pretty well documented. And we were interested in taking a water justice lens to this problem. And so in terms of what water justice looks like to me, you know, I can imagine in my head a scenario of 
transparent decision-making, community participation, local account uh, accountability, improved recognition of human rights norms and principles. You know, one can imagine a paradigm that looks like that. And of course, the challenge is that uh, in almost all cases that I've ever encountered in Laos, the reality is, is very far from that situation. So this is the, uh, the conundrum of people that are working in this area in Laos. Um, how do you you know, how do you try to bend the paradigm to shift towards a more of a water justice focus in terms of that hydraulic infrastructure development? And, you know, as outsiders, I'm, I'm not a Lao citizen, of course, you know, there's limitations in what external scholars and academics can do, but, you know, we can, you know, try to conduct uh, informed research that, that tells the reality and that uh, provides some practical suggestions for, for moving towards more of a water justice approach. So that's what we try to do in this paper. Keith, can I ask, how complicated water justice can get when you're tackling multiple diplomatic goals. What's happening, you know, in Laos actually affects what's happening in neighborhood countries. Mm -hmm. So does water justice need to be a, a kind of global effort considering that? Mm -hmm. Certainly in the Mekong region, yeah, there is a, a very strong upstream downstream dynamic happening with all of the dam projects. So, you know, these are uh, dams that uh, in our case, the Lao, in our study, the Lao government is, is promoting for national development. But of course, this has uh, downstream implications for people living in Cambodia and uh, even the Mekong, Vietnam, Mekong Delta in terms of the connectivity of rivers and the way that ecosystems function. So certainly in this case, it's not just a national problem. It involves the entire, you know, Mekong region. And, you know, there are systems set up through, the, for example, the Mekong River Commission to try to manage this, but they've also been struggling to deal with the complexities of this, of this situation. So. Great. Thanks, Keith. Back to the question of what does water justice look like and can you give us an example from your work? Can I ask you, Safa, for your take? So it was a difficult thing when I was thinking about I didn't want to focus on injustice because you see it all around you. I wanted to try and uh, think about what were the instances of water justice and where have I seen it? And it was very difficult to think of it. And one of the things that I remembered is when I was working before the PhD, I was looking, at, I was working with a network of group of people who were looking at addressing water quality issues there was, uh, my group was working on arsenic, which is present in the groundwater, which results in a lot of health challenges. There was another group that was working on fluoride issues, and that also results in a lot of health challenges. And oftentimes the people who are most impacted are those who are the most vulnerable, who can't afford to buy water or access. So this in itself creates inequalities. And one of the things that was really amazing over time, what we noticed is how uh, movement towards distributive justice happened. And it was over time, the local community came together to create accessible water supply systems. So they renovated their local pond, cleaned it up. The local university pitched in to test the water regularly so that there is bacteriological contamination assessment done. The schools were involved. The all, um, the funds for it were sourced from the local government. So this became a whole joint effort and it took a lot of time for this to awareness and action. It took about two years for this awareness and local action to come about. But this was amazing because it was also something that was nested within the local structure. So it's more enduring. And it was also a beautiful example of how all of these different actors came and worked together to create a system that is accessible by everyone in the local community. So that was one example that I thought was, it's not retributive, but it's rather the distributive justice that comes across. And it's not in this paper, but there was a group that was working who wanted to contribute, but then the pandemic happened and they had to move aside and contribute, continue their work with a lot of the local communities. Thanks so much. And I agree that whilst we very easily list what water injustice looks like, focusing on water justice rather than injustice sometimes can be challenging and it can look like a few different things. And I think that's a very important thing to keep in our minds as well. Quinton, can we hear from you from this question about what does water justice look like and an example, please? I just want to add to Safa's comments that, you know, this bottom-up community-driven 
processes are fundamental to ensuring we get water justice, or at least walk down the pathway to water justice, bend ourselves towards water justice. And, and certainly in Australia, there are examples I can point to. Um, they're not my examples, but I'd like to point to those examples. The Marawai Fitzroy River Council, chaired by uh, Dr. Anne Polina. So this is up in Kimberley, which is the northwestern part of Western Australia. They have certainly set out a series of management principles and set out a series of narratives talking about the importance of their river, their river of life, and how they want to have it managed, how they want it to see it continue in the, in the state that they want to, that they've had had it in for, for millennia. And that was a paper from the Thank special you. issue. There were yeah. three papers in the special issue uh, from Australia. And one of those papers was led by Lana Hartwick uh, and there's co-authors as well. And uh, that paper actually identifies the historical injustice in Australia and identifies these issues around ownership as well. I highly recommend the paper. So thank you for, for letting me be able to cite it and highlight it as well. There are other papers. There's, there's papers from the state of Victoria uh, written by Indigenous authors. Uh, and that also is a, a water justice story as well. And that talks to these sorts of things that can happen, positive, the positive that, that Safa highlighted. So there's the positive side, but it also does require that top down as well as the bottom up. And without both, I don't think we're going to get the justice that we need. So, so thanks for letting me highlight uh, Lana and, and of course her co-author's work. Thank you. So, I mean, that's a, that's a great example, but I think it's also worth highlighting that there's only so much communities can do because if we take the extent of the problem and it's in a huge problem, water injustice in a global scale, but let's talk to the country I'm talking to you from, which is Australia. We have the case where the Bakanji, they're an indigenous group in the western part of New South Wales. Uh, they had a land settlement with about 120 odd thousand square kilometres. That's a lot of land, but uh, they got well, not one drop of water. Uh, yet that is a very dry area. It's semi-arid to arid. Water was fundamental to them. In fact, the, their name Bakanji, Barker is the river that they refer to that uh, has huge significance for them. They didn't get any water, and not just them. Uh, if you take the Murray-Darling Basin, which is a catchment just over a million square kilometres in southeastern Australia, uh, the amount of water entitlements held by Indigenous Australians in their communities is about 0.2. I'm not talking about 20%. I'm not talking about 2%. I'm talking about 0.2%. That's just an injustice. It's an historical injustice, but it's an ongoing injustice. And the paper that I uh, wrote with William Nicolakis that is in the special issue refers to strategic Aboriginal water reserves in the Northern Territory of Australia. I won't talk to that, you can read the paper, but let me talk to a license that was provided at a place called Singleton Station. And this is a place that's 400 kilometers or so from Alice Springs, if you know where Alice is, it's pretty much the dead center of Australia. It is not semi-arid, this is arid. Okay, this is essentially a desert area. They provided 40 billion, that's not million, that's billion litres per year, for now for the three years initially, possibly for a lot more than that, to um, an agricultural company. And uh, yet the people who own that land, that's their country. They don't want it to happen, uh, but they haven't been unable to stop that. So that's injustice. And it means that we also have to come from the top as well as coming from the bottom. And only those together will we be able to get those processes that will bend us towards water justice, both in Australia and of course, uh, globally. Thank you, Quentin. I'm wanting to ask everyone what we think the major challenges are. And I know that we're trying to focus on justice rather than injustice, but of course, in the pursuit of justice, there will be many challenges. So I'll start with Keith, if I can. What do you think are the major water justice barriers or challenges? Yeah, so it's a good question and a tricky one, actually, in the case of Laos. You know, I've been working in Laos for around nearly 20 years, and, um, you know, I see the same problems recurring with different dam projects. Uh, it's hard to point to a dam, even the ones that have been backed by the international financial institutions and governed through external standards. There's still problems uh, quickly apparent if you go down to the field level and start talking with local communities. And basically, you know, the problems relate to coerced resettlement, poor consultations, non-recognition of local resource use, undervaluing of ecosystem services, 
and poor implementation of compensation and mitigation programs, which produce intra and inter-community conflicts. So it's just the extent of the problems that uh, I've seen over the years with multiple dam projects uh, indicates that this is, it's not just sort of a, something which is amenable for addressing through project by project approaches. It's more of a structural issue in terms of how uh, the dam development paradigm is proceeding in Laos. And so the starkest example is probably the, the dam collapse in 2018 uh, involving the Sapien Zainam Noi project in southern Laos, where uh, multiple villages were wiped out through uh, millions of liters of water flooding down a mountainside after a saddle dam collapsed. Uh, you know, killing between 40 and 70 people and washing people downstream. And even two years later, when I visited in 2020, they, the people were still living in ref, basically refugee camps. So this was a clear, the, the starkest example of an injustice, I think, related to the hydraulic paradigm in Laos. In terms of the barriers, you know, just briefly, I think we really have to grapple with and understand the Lao political context um, uh, to trace the, the source of these issues. And this builds upon my other work, with my, including with my PhD student, Kanya Suksukun, and my colleague, of, uh, historian of Laos, Simon Creek. I think it's important to recognize that Laos is not just sort of an authoritarian country. It's also a socialist country that has a particular socialist system, which in fact has its own social system of rights built within their constitution. And this means that you know, the Western human rights development paradigm has limited purchase within a communist state. The Lao human rights paradigm or rights paradigm emphasizes party leadership, first and foremost, uh, national stability, and focuses on collective rights over individual rights. And this means actively limiting the role of Western NGOs and human rights activists. So I think that's, you know, in, in terms of the basic uh, problem, first, we need to recognize, you know, how, how this is the political system is being organized, and then how dam building fits into that system. So we can understand Laos in terms of what has been called uh, statist socialism, which is a socialist system in which the Leninist party uh, leads uh, and, and controls the system of decision-making. So that means that there's no silver bullets basically, and that we need to, you know, first of all, understand the political context, but then also, you know, recognize the limitations of technical and managerialist fixes which you know, try to tweak things you know, in terms of improved corporate practices or external standards, those are going to have limited purchase when the, prop, the issue is, is more fundamental into uh, the political system. Thank you, Keith. I'll turn to Anna now. What, what do you think the major water justice barriers or, or challenges are from your experience? Thanks, Sam. For me, the major water challenges and barriers reside in our value system as a society. And although the challenges and the barriers are very different in different contexts, I think there's a commonality in the way that they reflect the value system of our governing bodies. By this, I mean that water justice is, for me, the, the amplification that water has on other forms of social justice. So when we look at the barriers, we have to think that that amplification goes also for good things like you know the enjoyment that we get from water. You have a swimming pool that's really good. You, you, you enjoy having that extra water, but that, that, that accumulation of that private benefit goes to the detriment of others. So water is also an amplifier of profits, of growth, and there's no limit to that. And when I said our value system is a, a, for the better, for the worse, a strong value in, in a lot of our societies these days is economic growth and more. And we always want more. And water is the fuel for that, for that growth in many cases. And this could be for industry, for agriculture or for personal uses. So for me, a major, a major challenge is to change these value systems where we put the public good first and not the private profits. Unfortunately, in the way that our water resources are managed in Australia and elsewhere, we are privatizing the benefits and socializing the losses. We are putting water in private hands to amplify those gains to the detriment of the general public. And when I say general public, I mean the everyday citizens, but I also refer to other living beings, to the environment and to our heritage. Thank you for that, Anna. I want to follow up by asking, do you think then that water justice faces the same kinds of challenges as most other kinds of 
justices? Most definitely. I do think that water justice is a reflection of other forms of, of justice or injustice, like uh, environmental justice. So the same way that we have individuals or countries who are polluting excessively and that the consequences of the pollution are felt by others who live very, very far away, both geographically and in time. I think water justice is also a reflection of those challenges where we put, as I said, the private benefits and accumulation of those gains in the hands of the very few to the detriment of the benefit of the general public, the environment and future generations. So to put up maybe in a positive spin, I guess, to, to solve those challenges, uh, I'd say that if we, if we solve our value system, if we really think of what we value more as a society, we could have cascading effects, not only water justice, but also other forms of environmental justice. Thank you. I appreciate the positive note to finish on, but it, certainly we have our, our challenges ahead, but it's good to have panels like this. So I'll turn to, to, to Quinton. What do you think are major water justice barriers or, or challenges? Are? How long is a piece of string? You know, these barriers are all over the place. Um, they're in our institutions. They're in our way of thinking. It's embedded in our culture in Australia, colonial type way of thinking. So it's, it's <laughs> you know, uh, caste systems, uh, class systems. Those are the sorts of things that get in the way. So we can ignore the people who are marginalised, uh, those people who suffer the most water injustice. So, so it's not just politicians, it's not just blaming the leaders. We have to take responsibility ourselves and individual action. And if I may, I, I'm going to read out a paragraph which uh, is co-written. It's not my paragraph, it's co-written, but of course, uh, Safa, uh, Gabriella and Louise. And, and, it, and it just highlights, at least from my perspective, I'm not including them in the sense of what they need to do there, they have been activists. They work with communities far more than I have. I'm just uh, doing that at a very marginal way. But my focus has been about truth telling or whatever you want to use that term, but, but really focusing in on uh, stories about what's going on and evidence in the context as, as a researcher. So I'm just going to read this paragraph. So thank you, Safa. Thank you, Gabriella and Louise. It's straight from our editorial, and here it goes. In our view, truth-telling about water injustice is a key first step on the pathway towards meaningful change and reconciliation. Transformational change can only come if we avoid post-truths, prejudices, and superficial judgments and conclusions. The much harder step beyond acknowledging the truths of water injustice is to act in ways that deliver a more just future. And so I would argue that each of us in our own way, and, and we will do different things. Uh, I'm a researcher primarily. That's where I suppose I, I will work and operate in. Others will operate in other spaces. But it, it's about I, each of us in those spaces, wherever we may be, working towards, acting towards, supporting, promoting water justice and, and environmental justice, climate justice, economic injustice, social injustice. I mean, those are all connected. They're not just one little part of, they are connected. And that requires all of us to be part of that, that solution. And I'd ask all of you to, to read the Nobel Prize speech just, uh, just from a couple of weeks ago, Nobel Peace Prize winner from the Philippines, and just read uh, Maria's work and just what she was saying about truth and, and the acts that we need to be part of to bring about transformational change. So that's that's my take on it. Great. Thank you, Quentin. I'll pass this question on finally to Safa. What do you think our major water justice barriers or challenges are? I think one of the biggest challenges, and it's also highlighted within uh, Johan and Inquist and their group and Arango and their paper around murky waters and the paper around informality and water justice. It's, it's this thing of the unseen, the unheard, informal groups of people who often get left out of the, the norm. They're, we normalize this unseen, this unheard, and normalization of injustice also, I think, is a very big barrier. And oftentimes, uh, just because they are informal settlements, just because they are low-income groups, their right to access, their right to clean water is often denied. And they have to rely then on private uh, suppliers, which are much more expensive 
So in a sense, they are paying triple times, not only for their health and time, but also with money. And I think that is one of the biggest barriers to getting water justice is normalization of it because you don't see it. You don't think it's injustice happening anymore because it's become so part of what you see every day. You don't see it anymore. It becomes unseen and it becomes unheard. And I think that's, it should be voiced out more. It should be seen more and it should be spoken about more. Great, thanks everyone. We've been talking about water justice, but also action and transformative change and what can be done. And there is sometimes a criticism of academics and people working for academic institutions that we can be very good at identifying problems, but not necessarily leading to some sort of material change. And I just wanted to put it to the panel. I mean, what do you think is the role of either academics or the academy in water justice? I'm happy to take that one up to start with. I have to admit, you know, the paper with David Blake and myself in this special issue, we did end on a bit of a pessimistic note, I'm afraid, (laughs) where we sort of said that, um, you know, there's been so much work done in this area over decades involving a lot of external support in terms of trying to promote a better practice or best practice standards in the hydropower sector in, in Laos, seemingly without much purchase over actual outcomes. So our paper probably is a good example of uh, documenting problems. Although, you know, looking back, there's always ways to engage and not just uh, bearing honest witness to the problem, which I think is also important. You know, academics have a role in terms of trying to open up the space of discussion on these issues. And in an authoritarian socialist country such as Laos, I think that's quite important. You know, we can engage with donor partners, uh, civil society, uh, investors, international financial institutions, to try to open up space for communities to be able to voice their concerns. And that really means, you know, supporting civil society in a careful way, because it's a it's a different context than, than in Australia. So you can't just sort of, you know, barge in and, you know, demand all sorts of changes. Making arguments that some of these changes would, in fact, be in the interest of the national community of Laos, for example. You know, creating a, a more downwardly accountable, transparent, effective system is, in fact, in, in the interest of, of the Lao government as well, in terms of effective management of environmental issues, uh, engagement with of, uh, the problems of local communities in terms of promoting poverty, alleviation, and things like that. So, you know, when hydropower development sort of goes off, off the rails, it's not just uh, local people that are affected, it also can create problems for the national community. And some of my recent work has discussed, in fact, the national debt problems that the Lao government has found themselves in through this sort of very rapid, rather uncontrolled uh, system of dam building that they've embarked on over the last two decades. And uh, at this point, the national electricity utility is deeply in debt. And this is in fact having sovereign debt implications for the entire country also being affected by, by the COVID crisis. So, you know, careful engagement is always uh, required, but I think uh, particularly for academics, you know, we have presumably the freedom to be able to be able to, to speak up for, you know, a more open, transparent uh, system that hopefully takes into account more community concerns. And I think that's definitely something that we can be doing. Thanks so much, Keith. Earlier, Asafa was talking about challenging the things that- that have been normalised, and I think that could be a key role. Asafa, would you like to reflect on that or talk about the role of academics or the academy? The role of academics, I feel, I want to flip this a little bit. Oftentimes, academics also become a barrier to sharing knowledge, just to that level itself, because about 20% of the world speaks English, but 98% of academic literature is published in English. So this in itself excludes a lot of people who are doing research in the local communities who want to share because publishing research legitimizes it, gives it a platform where that voice can be shared and made legal and made visible. And that visibility is not granted because academia slams the wall of language. And that was one of the things when we were doing the special issue. Also, we opened it up to people to allow that language not to be a barrier. We had put in budget all to see if we could help translate from different languages. So that was a conscious effort that was taken because South America is a whole continent. Many of them are 
speak Spanish, even Europe within itself, Africa, India, Asia, and this dominance is skewing the kind of access and insight we get about uh, water justice as a whole. So I feel that that is one big role that academia can play is to make it more open space for sharing of information and knowledge and allow this back and forth and work with a lot. Like how Keith was mentioning, work with a lot of these communities. One way to move beyond it is to work with these communities to provide that bridge, to share that information across and to make them seen, make them legitimate. Can I just follow on from Safa and just say, you know, in our special issue, uh, not all the people who submitted were published and uh, Safa well knows. So part of the issue there was that people were writing, yes, they are obliged to write in English, the journal is in English, so it has to be in English. I point out the editor-in-chief, by the way, her first language is Spanish, not English. So uh, there's no... There's no, no issue from the, the editor-in-chief, but the point is that it's in English and that uh, we were getting submissions that weren't the quality that needed to be, so it required a, a whole range of support to, to, to get it to the point uh, to get submitted, and not all of them uh, were able to be able to have that, that support up to the point of, of publication. And that's just ubiquitous, whether it's Uvalda Justice or whether it's basket weaving or, or whether it's you know, macroeconomics. It's, it's all of the same, you know, if you you're not writing in English and writing in English effectively, you don't know the game, so to speak, the publishing game, you're not going to get through the door. And that delegitimizes in some sense or doesn't give you the legitimacy of the publications. And, and there's huge knowledge in these in communities. Um, and I only know a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of what was provided to us through our submissions. Safa spent 10 years working in the Indian subcontinent uh, with communities, but they, those stories just don't get told, and at least not in the published literature primarily. Uh, some of it gets out in the grey literature and some of it does get there, but it's typically with academics who know how to play the game and, and write in English. So, yeah, there's a there's a real issue here about voice uh, or voice uh, unable to get uh, their voices into certain, certain places. And uh, that is, I think, a, a major problem. And academics need to be aware of it and they need to take concrete actions to go overcome that because we're in the place and the location where we can do something about it, where we do have influence and do have some sort of power, then that, and that, at least in that space, we can do something about it. We may not be able to change prime ministers and presidents, but we can, we can operate in the academic literature space uh, and our you know, professional societies and do something about it and should do something about it. Yes, that's true. And if people working in the academic spaces are the ones who are responsible for transforming that space and, and who is considered an authority or an expert or whose knowledge counts and how that's expressed. Anna, do you want to say something? Thanks. I just wanted to go back to the original question on sometimes like academics are criticised for not creating change. And I just wanted to reflect on the roles of, of academics. And I think this, this perception that we are supposed to be creating change comes from maybe a bit of an, uh, an old stereotype of the academic as a tennis player where this one person has to do everything. The academic has to serve, has to return balls, has to know how to move in the field. And I think academics are now moving to a more like a teamwork. I'm just gonna throw a soccer analogy. So I rarely hear anyone criticizing a defender for not striking goals. It's not the goalie's role to score goals. That's a striker. And I think now academics, we are moving into this space. Some of us are, are going to be really good at crunching the numbers, at getting the, the evidence there, at, at generating the, the truth. And some others are going to be really good at telling the truth, at being truth tellers and convincing the general public, policymakers or whoever of that reality. Others will be really good at, at publishing and getting funding. So I think academics are now moving to a space where we are team players and they could be within the academic world and through platforms like the Water Justice Hub or other, other collaborative platforms, but also with other stakeholders who are not necessarily academics. As Keith mentioned, this could be partner organizations, this could be communities, this could be funding agencies. So again, going back to the original question, if academics are criticized for not creating change, I'd say we have to look at the bigger system and at the bigger picture and see that we play a little role in an increasingly complex ecosystem of change 
because we are also against or side by side other complex organizations that are very, very well organized and very, very well funded and who will pursue their own goals, their own very legitimate aims for what they do. But because we are now you know, in this very complex environment, we are going to a, a system where we're more specialized and we do what we're really good at, but the change won't happen perhaps at the individual level, but I think it will certainly happen at the level of collaborations and, and teamwork in academia and with our partners. I mean, the, the challenge we face, of course, is, I mean, we're not all academics and most people listening to it won't be, but, but an individual academic will get judged as an individual. So if they go up for promotion or they go up for uh, a job uh, application, they will be judged, yes, but potentially in some places, good places, uh, they will look at their ability to do teamwork, etc. So it will count, but, but ultimately they'll be judged by themselves, by their break records, etc. So, so yes, I do agree with that, <laughs> but, but unfortunately the, the, the processes within universities uh, tends to focus in on the individual uh, and, um, and uh, rather than looking at the, the group or the team. Uh, that, that is a, uh, that's a problem, for, especially for younger academics, early career researchers who have to ensure that they get employed, continue to be employed and get promoted uh, based on, on their merits. Yes, I was going to follow up by asking, do you think that universities or the institution, academic institutions themselves present barriers for? Well, I, I did a quick response in this one. Look, um, universities are organizations like any organization that looks after itself. So you it's, it's, need to separate this view that a university is out there to, to help the world. That's not how universities operate. If they do operate like that in the past, they, they don't. They're neither better nor worse than any other large organizations. But they are conservative organizations and indeed academics are conservative type of people conservative i don't mean in terms of how they vote i mean in the sense that they they have particular ways of operating traditions is how you could use that terms of perhaps a better term and that influences how they make decisions about individual promotion or about how money is spent within universities those sorts of things and it does require change it requires diversity diversity of thinking as well and so yes i think universities are part of the problem but it's a broader issue than that uh, and i think academics so and yeah, academics themselves are, are part of the part of the issue or we identified this issue of of thinking the culture and we all suffer from those uh, those limitations so i think academics because of the nature of their job because of the privileges that come with being a part of the ac academia i uh, need to take those initiatives and to be in the front I'll be on the front foot, so to speak, certainly within our own spaces, uh, journals in particular, academic journals, professional societies, that's separate typically from the university to employers. And so we can operate in those spaces, even if we may not be able to change universities, we can certainly, I think, engage and change journals. And we've certainly tried to do that in the context of the special issue and who we reached out to. I think that's the sort of thing we have to do. We've got to be conscious of it. We need to act on it rather than just to say, oh, that's the way it is. That's not my issue. That's not my problem. Mm. Thanks, Quentin. No, I agree. I just wanted to clarify that uh, I agree with Quentin that there is a mismatch between what academics are expected to do within the institution of the university. And it is true that we expect it to, to be good at everything to pursue our careers, but from an external perspective, from creating change and influencing policy mm. or educating people, getting our results and getting the truth out there for the general public, it's a different set of expectations that require a different set of arrangements and, and efforts. So yes, there is a mismatch, I think, between the different expectations of academics, whether that's within the university or externally. Mm. Well, Water Justice, as we've talked about, is going to be a collaborative effort. And I imagine that some of our audience who have been inspired or enlightened by some of the words today may want to get involved in some way uh, what kind of influence do water justice advocates need what what can an average listener do to um, work toward water justice bend toward water justice is it just awareness or engagement or is it is it something more i'll, I'll start with the uh, suffer if that's okay there's so much that that can be done but one of going back to my point of normalization maybe one thing is don't normalize injustice as an individual, as it, it, as groups working on it. It might be exhausting, though, 
because there is so much of injustice around us, constantly picking and constantly voicing it out becomes challenging for an individual to continuously keep doing it. You become that person who's always pointing out. One way to counter that also is to find groups of like-minded people who are working towards it, organize, because a single person's voice is often lost in the crowd, but the crowd cannot be easily silenced. And this is this I've seen even within my own research where there was massive water pollution happening, the rivers were being urban polluted, local communities organized and filed a court petition against it. While there was a lot of policy already present, there was institutions present, nothing was happening. It had become normalized, river pollution kept happening, no one was saying anything. But when community came together, used those legal instruments and filed charges, that was when the government action really happened. That was when this continuous pollution was taken into account and suddenly everyone had to wake. And even a lot of bureaucrats were like, if you really want to get change to happen, get a big group to organize and move things. That is when your laws at least in many places that I know, will really get implemented. So that that's one aspect that I've seen. Right. I'm going to pass this on to Keith, who is studying in an area where maybe collective action isn't quite so simple. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not simple in the case of Laos. I think it's fair to say that in Laos, water justice advocates are under significant political pressure. And you know this relates to sort of the nature of the political system that I mentioned earlier. Currently, there's a, a young lady serving a five-year prison sentence in southern Laos for speaking up around different human rights problems, including issues related to the dam collapse that I, I mentioned earlier. So, interrupt, Keith. Can you give us her name so the listeners can know who this person is? Yeah, uh, her name is Mui, and there's actually a website, hashtag free Mui, M-U-A-Y. She's a young lady uh, serving a five-year prison sentence, allegedly for criminal defamation and distributing anti-state propaganda by speaking up around the government's reaction to flooding in the aftermath of the dam collapse. And that's not the worst that has happened. Uh, the, The country's leading civil society leader was disappeared in 2012 and has not been seen since. So civil society operates uh, in Laos operates under very severe restrictions. And uh, as Australians and, and as you know, supporters of Laos, you know, I'm in fact a bit of a Lao nationalist myself. Uh, you know, the, the existence of Laos comes out of a very troubled history during the Vietnam War. You know, we just have to be uh, careful and engaged and you know, informed when we're uh, working on these issues. And in terms of what everyday people can, for example, Australians can do, you know, this means like having a good understanding of our regional neighbors uh, and having an an informed historical understanding of the strengths as well as the limitations of of the countries around the ASEAN region. And then, you know, developing careful collaborative approaches to try to address some of these problems. And that means also being mindful that civil society activists in some of these countries can themselves be endangered or be operating under very difficult circumstances. You know, the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade has an annual human rights dialogue with the government of Laos, which is actually behind closed doors. So we don't hear too much about it. And they see this as a strategy to, you know, this the, the closed door option, right, to raise issues behind the scenes to try to, you know, use subtle diplomacy to try to engage with these issues. There's limitations with that as well, though, right? When there's clear injustices, when people are being imprisoned or disappeared, I think that Australians also have a responsibility to stand up and to link this to the foreign aid program and to say that, you know, Australia stands for certain values and that we shouldn't be hiding this as well. So, you know, careful, calibrated approaches, but also when things are on the line, Australia has to be ready to stand up for that as well. So I guess those would be my recommendations for what people can do. Thank you, Keith. I'd like to pass the question over to Quinton, if I can. Just three things, really, um, uh, the, the big things. But so, first of all, you know, do get yourself informed. There's some literature in the water space that will misdirect you in your efforts uh, to certain things. I, I won't mention them, but they, so make sure you are fully informed about what the issue is, whether it's a local, regional or global issue. Uh, and just make sure you've done the, the adequate due diligence, so you don't go off on some pathway 
somebody else who's uh, got some agendas or, or whatever. And the you can start with do... the uh, you can start with the previous episodes of the Water Justice Podcast. <laughs> absolutely, and you can start with the special issue as well, of course. So absolutely, so all of those places that that have gone through some uh, some uh, appropriate uh, filters, etc. So the, the second thing is do what you can. I mean, some people are, are, are you know struggling to 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 survive, um, let alone trying to to engage with uh, you know various uh, action groups. So. So some people can do more than others. So do what you can, get, get informed, do what you can. And then the third thing is, I'm just gonna highlight what Safa said is this issue of solidarity as Pope Francis has talked about, that it's, it's really doing it together. You can't do this alone. If you have all the time in the world, uh, you still wouldn't be able to or shouldn't do it alone because it can be very hard. So you've got to do it together in, in a joint way. And so those are the three things, yeah, be informed, do what you can. Uh, don't overdo it, uh, and and of course, do it together. That's how I, that's how I would describe it. Thank you, Quentin. Uh, I'll finish up with Anna. Do you have uh, anything you can that you can add? Or I think it's all being covered, and uh, I just agree with the key stuff. And Quentin have said, just be informed. Do what you can, and do it uh, together. I just want to reflect on the Kat and I taught a water justice course earlier this year, and. One of the reflections that we heard from the students was that just even being aware of the issue of water justice was like an eye opener. So what we told the students is when you go about and whether it's to read the local newspaper or talk to community or go into the, the next federal election, put on your water justice glasses. Look at the world through your water justice lens and you'll see things differently. A lot of our students said, oh, we, I thought about water management before. I didn't realize it was a justice issue. I didn't realize water translated into social justice issues. So for the, um, my comment, just for people who want to be involved is get informed and put on your water justice lens when you go around and look at the world. Thanks everyone. This is this, this arc of justice. Can you tell us about what do you mean by the arc of justice and why are we trying to bend it? Since I put the quote in our editorial, obviously they're not my words. The notion of the arc of justice, the bending towards the arc of justice, comes from my the original source uh, in those terms is in the 19th century, and it's the anti-slavery movement in the United States. And uh, Americans are most famous for using those terms, but as I said, it's, those words have existed for a long period of time in other, other places as well. But that's where it gets its, its, uh, its renown. And of course, Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Nobel laureate himself, civil rights campaigner in the United States, used those terms in relation to there is injustice, that people working together can bend towards justice. Uh, that's the key point. Uh, <laughs> so I buy into that. I, I strongly believe that the case is not uh, fixed and that we can move the rules of the game, we can influence, we can change. That's what. Uh, that's why that's where I'm coming from and in, in, in that space but it has a long antecedent well before well before our, uh, our special issue and editorial great thanks maybe before we wrap up if anyone else wants to say anything else about this arc of justice or any final comment that you want to add before we finish up one of the things that that it's that came out today also was that there is no simple answer there are so many contextual, instances one place you have to work in one way one place you have to work in another way so it's it's not that simple it's not you can't repeat the same thing that happened in one place in another place and I think that's also something that it's good to keep in mind it's that it's not processes that we can repeat or like formulas and it's as we're bending this arc that's a important thing to keep in mind Great. Thank you. This has been a very productive discussion. I really appreciate all of your time. Thank you very much to Anna, Safa, Keith and Quentin for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Tim and Kat, and thanks everyone in the panel. It's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. It's been uh, wonderful to be part of this group today. Thanks very much, Tim. It's been my pleasure to talk with you and the others. And it's a great special issue. So I encourage the readers to uh, certainly check that out. Well, and thanks. Thanks so much, Tim. Thanks so much, Kat, for co-hosting this wonderful episode. Much appreciated. And thank you to our audience for tuning in. That concludes Series 1 of the Water Justice Podcast. 
Thank you for listening and participating in Conversations for Water Justice. We hope that you have taken some inspiration and new knowledge with you and that you'll continue on your water warrior path. Remember that change is possible, even when it is not easy. Current water paradigms are constructed by people and they can be deconstructed and built in a different way for a better future. With the help of many people like you, we can all change history's course and bend the arc towards water justice. For now, if you found any of these panellists of particular interest, you can find links to their published articles in the episode description. Please consider subscribing and sharing this episode, as it helps spread the ideas of water justice. We hope that you'll stay tuned for news of the Water Justice podcast and other initiatives on the Water Justice Hub. Bye for now. Thank you.